It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey, 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 hey. It's the Underdogs Podcast. No, stop. What? We don't intro the cold open. Jordan, I'm joking because you reminded me that it was a cold open. <laughs> like, I didn't know what that was, okay? Well, you're kind of stupid. So we're doing a cold open. <laughs> Jesus. He says, do the cold open, and I do an introduction, and he actually stops me to say- Why were you doing Fat Albert? Jordan, it was a joke because you needed to instruct me on what the cold open was. Here's the cold open. Jordan- did you enjoy lunch yesterday? Mine was pretty tasty. I had a focaccia, little iced tea, and a lovely downtown New York City spot after we had our meeting with the higher-ups at Meadowlark, our corporate overlords. Oh, I had a lovely avocado toast omelet, like a beautifully toasted bread, the omelet on top of it. You ate it with a fork and a knife, and it just like everything connected. The iced tea was flowing. Did you take good notes? Did you take good notes about how to improve the show? Lots of notes. I feel like we're going to put on a much wait, better- Wait, wait. What meeting are you talking about? Oh, no. Oh, no. it was only for local people, Tom. Tom, we didn't think you could make it. Yeah. It's not like we were taking revenge on you for not inviting us to your Kentucky Derby party. We would never do that. There was an underdogs meeting in New York City at some lavish restaurant- and I wasn't invited? It was actually at the headquarters, right? A shared workspace. It was very nice. Yeah. I didn't get to go to the rooftop sauna, but that was just because of the time of day, I think. There's a sauna? The roving massage what? was fantastic as well. Right, and that's just what Jordan just did for extra money. <laughs> Eight to shoot. Paul, the runner! Loose ball! It's good! With 4.4 to go! Shannon! Don't want to fall! Shannon! From the corner! It's over! The cry goes up both far and near for underdog, underdog, underdog. Joe Namath, number 12, has been the one big sideline. He's come down here and he says the Jets are going to win. In fact, he doesn't even predict it. He says, I guarantee a Jet victory. Oh my kid, I ain't even in the guys' league. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. Underdog, Underdog. They're bigger, faster, stronger, more experienced, and on paper, they're just better. Oh my goodness! The longest shot has won the Kentucky Derby! Red strike and a stunning, unbelievable upset! Shock it all in college basketball! Underdog! Underdog! I expect you boys to go out there and not take this team lightly because I promise you, they're going to come at you with everything they've got. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. You believe in miracles? Yes! Hey, George, the dream is alive. With speed of lightning, roar of thunder, fighting all who rob or plunder, Underdog, underdog, underdog. Well, then I guess there's only one thing left to do. Win the whole fucking thing. I'm Peter Keating, and I'm here on the Underdogs podcast with noted superstar baseball, basketball, sports world analysts, 
Jordan Brenner and Tom Haberstroh. And of course, they want to keep talking about basketball. They would talk about basketball through the end of August if they could, because that's what they write about and claim to know about. But we're going to get into a lot of other stuff, like where baseball closers come from. We're going to get some horse racing picks. I hear there's some second leg of a big, uh, what do they call it, the triple crown coming up sometime soon. But first, we return to the NBA playoffs and look at underdogs in the NBA playoffs. Once again, here on the Underdogs Podcast. Who's the underdog? Who am I rooting for if I like long shots? Why? What the hell does underdog even mean in this context? Here we go. I'm sorry to have to, you know, bore you with NBA, which is only the biggest sport happening right now, Peter. Chalk, chalk, chalk. There is no chalk. And in fact, I did some research <laughs> to make that happen. So you could look and say, oh, the conference finals is a one versus a two seed and a one versus a four seed. Chalk. Rock, Chalk, Jayhawk, Andrew Wiggins. Except it's not. Well, I had to watch the last few games of the Celtics series with Boston fans. So it felt very much like guaranteed dynasty back in the conference finals, overlords. It felt like I felt like it was in the company of overdogs, not underdogs. But Peter, if you had asked those same Celtics fans before the season how many wins they would have, Probably wouldn't have said 51, right? Yeah, yeah. And they certainly wouldn't have thought they were in the conference finals. So I went back and looked. You have the Heat, the Celtics, the Warriors, and the Mavericks. Here were the preseason over-under win totals for those teams. The Heat, 48.5. The Celtics, 46.5. The Warriors, 47.5. And And the Mavericks, 48.5. Four teams all projected below 50 wins. Basketball Reference tracks these things going back all the way to 1996-97 season. Do you know how many times that's happened before this season? That no teams that were projected to win at least 50 games before the season, the preseason odds. Well, let's see here. See, I would have guessed quite a few because over-under projections should be pretty cautious, right? You probably have far fewer teams projected to win, let's say, 65 games than actually do. Nobody would project anybody to win 65 games. Sure, but this is 50 wins. So there were six teams this year that were projected over 50 wins, and all of them were out before this point. And actually, the Lakers didn't even make the playoffs. So I'm going to go with, this has happened twice before. This is almost as good as vet the bet, by the way. (laughs) Come on. Nothing comes close to vet the bet. We'll vet some bets later on. Peter? I will guess five times. You're both Wrong. Wow. It has happened a grand total of zero times. Really? Never since we have access to this data in a full season has the conference finals failed to include a team projected to win at least 50 games during the season. In fact, even in shortened seasons, you had a team projected to win 50 games, lockout, COVID years, etc. So this is unprecedented, and I'm struggling to think about what it represents because Could this be the real evidence of parity that we've been looking for for some time now? Or is it the evidence of the constant agent of chaos on this show is injuries? We had an unprecedented number of games missed due to injury. Hashtag man games lost. Our friends at man games lost. I mean, the Brooklyn Nets had 56 and a half over under, which I hammered, hammered, hammered that over under. Hammered, hammered, hammered me on Derby Day. Hammer, hammer, hammered (laughs) the under on Brooklyn Nets, 56 and a half. They didn't hit that number because of injuries and because of Kyrie Irving and because of just dysfunction around the the franchise, right? Mm -hmm. 
And then the Lakers had some injuries this year. I think when you look at why those big juggernauts or the favorites underperformed this year, I think a lot of it has to do with that is injuries, right? And I think players are getting more injured than ever. And that's probably explains some of it, right, Peter? Well, I think it's intertwined with the, the collapse of the three Hall of Famer or superstar grouping or a superstar self-directed cluster of players' teams. Those teams probably are the teams that failed to exceed far short of their expected wins, leaving room for other teams to do better. Doesn't this, though, speak to a different era of roster building, one that has to build in some margin for error? So. The Mavs were missing Luka Doncic at the beginning of the playoffs. They still managed to hold their own against the Jazz and beat them in that series. The Warriors have dealt with injuries of their own. The Heat were missing Kyle Lowry in Game 1. The Celtics were missing Al Horford and Marcus Smart and have had uh, Robert Williams in and out of the lineup. So, sure, you could say that a perfectly healthy version of the Nets or, uh, you know, I, I, I think the Lakers' problems extended well beyond injuries, but perfectly healthy versions of them might have had something to say about this, but maybe you just can't expect that and you can't build a team that way anymore. Maybe we are combined with different styles of play, even more pace and space, more three-point shooting, fewer bigs. Maybe the game has changed in the way you build a roster too. I'm always interested in how some of the team building strategies that happen in real sports, live sports, are echoed in fantasy and that if you spend a year or two running a fantasy team, you actually have to think about questions like this and how fantasy owners learn some of these lessons ahead of teams in real time. Like, you know, a guy who hits 40 home runs a year or scores 40 points a game is far more valuable than a guy who hits 20 home runs or scores 40 points or 20 points or 20 goals, right? It's, it's a curve. It's a steep curve. And so one way to build fantasy teams or real life teams is superstars and scrubs, right? I mean, you put all your resources into the very best players. You're not going to have anything left to have anything like average players at the rest of your spots, right? But what's better, a superstar season or like a third of a season by a superstar plus two-thirds of a season of a scrub if your superstar gets injured or refuses to get vaccinated, (laughs) right? So at some point, the team building has to start to reflect the fact that your fill-ins have to be substantially above what we call replacement level, right? And the teams that do the best job of finding those players are the ones who are built for long-term success. That's really interesting because that's a big big change. That means 90% of the available free agent money probably isn't going to go to a tiny cluster of players anymore, if that's true. It could be a couple other things too. There could be more players now who are at that very elite level. So in previous NBA history, when you had two or three true superstars at a time, or in the Michael Jordan era, one guy who was so much better than everyone else, in LeBron's peak, one guy who was so much better than everyone else. Now, maybe there are anywhere between five and 12 guys like that who on any given night could be the best player in the world. Or maybe that means there's just no superstar. But I think my, my gut tells me the proliferation of talent, especially internationally, has just expanded the pool of great players. I don't know, Tom, do you feel the same way? 
look at the Milwaukee Bucks this year. They were projected to be 54 and a half wins in the regular season. They were the returning champions. And I could see a scenario which Jordan, Peter, that they are in the conference finals, but they didn't make it. They went to a game seven without Chris Middleton. So I come back to the injuries thing is that I think when we talk about why certain favorites aren't in the conference finals now and the final four is the most underdog heavy final four that we've seen in recent NBA history. When you look at the preseason expectations, Chris Middleton, I think would probably push the Milwaukee Bucks into the conference finals over the Boston Celtics. And so I don't want to make too much of the team building thing, but then I come up with this other study that I just did. And I know Peter Keating is just trying to steer this conversation over to baseball and closers and all that jazz. But I'm going to keep it to the Jazz because the Jazz are in the NBA, Utah Jazz. You like that? Don't let him close this. <laughs> Here's the fascinating thing about the conference finals teams. When we talk about underdogs, yeah, we can talk about seeds. Like you said, Jordan, it's very chalky. But if you look at preseason expectations, it is a very underdog conference finals. And from the perspective of the draft, which we had the draft lottery this week, the Orlando magic, congratulations, winning the draft lottery. It's on the front of a lot of people's minds right now in the NBA, but we're seeing evidence that the draft means less and less every single year. If you look at the conference finals teams, the Boston Celtics, the Miami heat, the Dallas Mavericks, the golden state warriors, one thing you notice is how many undrafted players there are. Look at the Miami Heat, Max Struess. Look at Gabe Vincent starting in place of Kyle Lowry. They win game one. They have Dwayne Dedman playing. They have Dory, uh, uh, Duncan Robinson, who's coming off the bench, kind of. Also undrafted players. They have four undrafted players in their rotation, if you include Caleb Martin, Duncan Robinson, Gabe Vincent, and Max Struess. And this year, we've seen 11 rotation players who didn't even get their name called on draft night, which is the highest we have since I tracked this since 2012. Do you have the others? I know it's I know it's Finney Smith in Dallas, Kleba in Dallas. Yep. Who else you got? We got Gary Payton the second. Don't call him the mitten. He hates that nickname. Juan Toscano Anderson, Daniel Tice for the Boston Celtics, Damian Lee for the Warriors. That's 11 players who were not even drafted. And going back in 2021, there were four. In 2020, there were nine. But that was a bubble. Maybe that was just a uh, bubble season. In <laughs> 2019, there was four. And in 2018, guys, there was one player who was undrafted in the final four NBA teams. His name, Aaron Baines. So you think this is a blip or you think this is evidence of, of either, again, proliferation of talent? There's just too many good players to narrow them all into a draft or just great organizations that can find those guys. Can I trot out one theory that blends a couple of those and see what Tom thinks is whether this is not necessarily a blip. Does it involve baseball, <laughs> this theory? No, it doesn't even involve horses. Okay, good. Not directly. I was just thinking it might be. Yeah. Do you think that the bubble, the COVID in general, was an, not just a blip, but an inflection point where teams teams had to report COVID injuries, right? But it wasn't just COVID injuries that went up. There were non-COVID-related injuries also went up. And I wonder if it wasn't just because of rehab or conditioning problems related to bubble or games off or schedules getting messed up. Mm. I wonder whether 
teams are just reporting more or players or trainers, somebody. Opportunities are going up. Reporting more injuries, creating more opportunities for players to have to step in. Are we just in an era where, and maybe there's just more respect for rest time or the change schedule or something where even the best players, even healthy players are going to play fewer games are, is everyone just playing fewer games? Are we in, an, are we in that an era where everybody's playing fewer minutes, fewer games, and that creates a lot of the conditions for what we're talking about? Well, I'll throw something else in, which is two-way contracts have increased the opportunity for those fringe guys to get looks, right? You come in for a couple games, you go back to your G League affiliate. So dovetailing with what Peter says, if guys are in part able to miss more games and rest more games because there are people you can call up and bring in. So you're right. The from a an evaluative um, standpoint, those guys are probably getting more looks. And if we're drawing from more countries, more players, just the pool of available talent should be increasing every year. Very good point. And I think the flip side is interesting too: is that there's only one number one overall pick in this field of four teams. There's one. It's Andrew Wiggins. That's wild. Yeah, you hear that, Orlando Magic? You're all excited. Tom's here to rain on your parade. You're going to trade it just like they traded Chris Webber. Trade the pick now, cowards. But the thing is, although there are so many undrafted players, and although, as you said, only one was number one overall pick, all of these teams have been built largely through a draft model, supplementing with, with trades or free agency, right? We know the Warriors' core was drafted, and then they've they've added to that with Jordan Poole, a Kavon Looney. So other than the Wiggins trade, it's really homegrown. Dallas, obviously Doncic, Jalen Brunson. You said Finney Smith and and Kleba were undrafted but didn't play for anyone else. And then they've supplemented again with a little bit of like a Dinwiddie trade here and a signing there. Dinwiddie and Jalen Brunson, both second round picks, and not that many free agents either. The Celtics core. Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Marcus Smart, all drafted. They got Al Horford back on the cheap. And then really the only team of the bunch that's that's made significant free agent signings was the Heat with Jimmy Butler. And I guess Kyle Lowry was a sign-in trade, right? Yeah, and Jimmy Butler was too. So if you keep, right. it, keep in mind the fact that they traded for Jimmy Butler, who did they trade away? Josh Richardson, a second-round pick that they developed. I think what you're getting at, Jordan, yes. is player development might be this missing piece here that we need to talk about more is how do you take second round picks, undrafted players and build them up into rotation players, high caliber NBA players. And I think a lot of it does come down to culture comes from the top down in the organization. Why were the Brooklyn Nets not able to win a game against the Boston Celtics? Well, what kind of culture do, do they have? They had culture on a Kenny Atkinson and then they had to throw it all the way so that they could bring in K Kyrie and KD. So what does your organization value? What kind of continuity do you have from your front office all the way down to the coach, to the coaching staff? And I think the reason why the Miami Heat are able to build these diamonds in the rough so frequently is because they have a culture, hashtag heat culture. They have continuity, the GM, Pat Riley, uh, the GM, Andy Ellisberg, and Eric Spolstra have been in lockstep for 20 years, it seems. And they're always here, right? They never, they kind of never go away. The culture never changes. Celtics too. Yeah. These teams have basically been making the conference finals half the time for the past decade and a half. And it, it goes overlooked because post-LeBron, they haven't, neither team's won titles. 
But th- you're right. They are they are always in the mix. I hate to say this because I really believe, you know, players should get as much money as they can grab and they should influence as many decisions as, as they can get their hands on. But is there a team that has followed the direction of superstar players in acquiring the players those players want to play with as their establishment of culture that has succeeded? Like, as you all know, I love the movie Uncle Drew. And I was excited to see. <laughs> Here we go. I was excited to see Kyrie play locally, but I'm really, I'm actually kind of upset as a fan with what's happened to the Nets because I don't think there's a better superstar you could build around in terms of establishing the kind of play you want out of his teammates and showing it by example than Kevin Durant. But what the hell happened? I mean, nothing, nothing good has come out of that experiment. What good has come out of any of these experiments? It's just kind of interesting. Let's not dismiss the Milwaukee Bucks, who were the champions last year, have arguably the best player on the planet, Giannis, who they did draft, paid a lot of money to retain Chris Middleton. I don't mean getting good players. And acquired Drew Holiday. Right. I don't mean, is there a model that works other than getting good players? Well, that's still the three-star model, is my point. While athletes are busy becoming great athletes, everybody who is great at player development are busy learning how to develop players, right? And I just, this is all making me wonder if those career paths ever intersect. Like, can you hire, can you basically put a player in charge of your team and expect to be as good at player development as you're saying the team needs to be? Well, you can arguably say if the Bucks were as good in in the player development field as as the Heat, that they would have had a couple of more low-cost supplementary players to help Giannis and Drew even when Middleton went down, right? Yes. Yeah, Dante DiVincenzo could have been that guy, but they traded him. And then you got Pat Connaughton, who was not that guy. They figured out in the past series is that they can't rely on that third wheel coming up, stepping up. Whereas Max Struess has been that guy here and there for the Miami Heat. And I'll say this, you know, 2020, when LeBron James and Frank Vogel and Anthony Davis won the title against the Miami Heat, by the way, I think that was, hey, Lakers exceptionalism that we'll just bring in LeBron. We'll trade for Anthony Davis. And you might laugh at how dysfunctional we are. Magic Johnson pieces out and all we're the laughing stock of the NBA, but we're the Lakers and we're going to win this thing because we're the Lakers. That whole idea was vindicated by that 2020 championship. But now maybe that was the exception, not the rule. And what we're seeing the last couple of years is that player development is so underrated when it comes to these teams and like Phoenix last year with uh, Devin Booker and with uh, Mikael Bridges and DeAndre Ayton go on down the line. Cam Johnson. They had a team that was before they acquired Chris Paul, that was a team that was trying for years to make it work with their young core and they finally broke through. But you know what? Speaking of breaking through. This season on my fantasy team, I don't like to draft closers because I just feel like it's such a fluid thing. It's so impossible to pick closers in fantasy. So I ended up just picking up David Robertson off the waiver wire and I was really happy with him for the Cubs and then he got COVID. And now I'm just thinking to myself, how do you even project closers? Because I can't even, Craig Kimbrell is supposed to be like an elite closer and he's with the Dodgers now and he's been terrible lately. And so my thing is, when we talk about baseball, it seems like to me 
the real underdog story in baseball is all these relievers that become closers. And I think Jordan, we got to hand the baton over to Peter here because he's been waiting, waiting to get this off. If it ever felt like a time for a lukewarm corner, this is it, baby. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We got a hot pick this time. Look, here's the deal. The problem with fantasy, we all know, is that most fantasy leagues, even advanced fantasy leagues, track stats that bounce all over the place, don't correlate well, and that analytics are showing again and again and again aren't that meaningful. Like, There's still tons of fantasy leagues out there that track batting average and stolen bases, but at least you can have an idea about how to stay competitive in those leagues while drafting actually valuable players. You can kind of project guys' speed. You can project their batting average. But closers or relievers' ERAs or the number of saves, that pops around crazy from year to year. When I looked at this going back to 2016, which is just as much data as I could take looking at mediocre closers, every year there's an average of 10 pitchers a year whose saves total jumps or crashes by 15 or more from year to year. Large fluctuations you're talking about. Huge fluctuations. So if you have 15 saves one year, what are the odds you're going to have 20 or 30 or 40 or become the next dominant closer the next year? Well, you just can't tell. But you probably also know there are stats that track more closely from year to year that are predictable and valuable. Strikeout percentage is what we look at now more than strikeouts per nine innings, for example, right? Um, But what's interesting is if you look at the guys who take huge leaps into closers roles, they come from all over the place. Some of them are reclamation projects. Some of them are coming off injuries. About half of them are former starters, right? So they can come from anywhere. And if you look at, I mean, put yourself in the position of a manager like (laughs) a team like, let's say the Red Sox, right? Who are already struggling, have had some bad luck, And then game after game, they bring in a guy like Matt Barnes, who basically just throws gas on the fire, right? There's three things that managers, it turns out, look for. If you look at the players who get elevated into the closers roles, one of them is they throw fastballs and they throw them really hard. Sooner or later, managers get tired of guys coming in who can't just blow by opposing batters. So guys who take over closers roles and save a lot of games – tend to throw a lot of fastballs, and they tend to throw them at extremely high velocities. They also tend to keep the ball in the ballpark. They give up home runs at below average rates. Unfortunately, the number of guys who can keep balls in the ballpark and throw 100 miles an hour all the time, you can count those on like one hand. Right. If you throw it hard, it's going to leave the bat very hard. Right. So you have to, in trying to 
scout these players, you have to take not an all of the above, but kind of any of the above approach. So anybody who doesn't give up a lot of home runs or anybody who throws really hard, they're likely to, to, to move into closers roles, even if they don't do both at the same time. So looking at relievers so far this year who don't have a lot of saves, but who have extremely high fastball usage and high fastball velocity. Um, you come up with guys like A.J. Minter of the Braves, currently the setup man. His fastball average is 97 miles an hour. I think it's just a matter of time before he moves into that role. Andres Munoz of the Seattle Mariners, his fastball is above 100 miles an hour. He's part of a committee. He's been unlucky with giving up home runs. But you just see like Time and time again, it's guys with that level of fastball that take over closers' roles. And there's one guy I want to mention in particular, Johan Duran, or Johan Duran of Minnesota. He's kind of a co-closer now. The guy's 6'5", 240. His fastball is averaging 101 miles an hour this year. He's been unlucky in that 40% of his fly balls have gone for home runs. But his ERA is still pretty low. I think it's just a matter of time to at least see making opponents like the Yankees say, no Moss in the playoffs. Wow. Mays is a big fan of his brother Duran Duran as well. <laughs> but that's basically it. Use use the new advanced, more advanced metrics. Strikeout percentage, look for 30 or 35% or above. Johan Duran is right now striking out 39% of the batters he faces. Munoz, 42%. But Peter, why are we why are we looking at this from a, a conventional closer perspective? Is this from a fantasy? Yeah, because saves still count so much in most fantasy leagues. So what you're telling me is I got to pick up a few guys who are in the setup role who are throwing straight gas. And by the end of the year, either they're going to be traded to teams that are going to need a closer halfway through the season, or they're going to be elevated. Or they'll take over the role because at the point where the bases are loaded, it's the eighth or ninth inning and the manager has to do something, he's going to get tired of seeing either home runs golfed over the wall or balls hit hard back instead of just guys getting struck out. But we're we're in agreement that putting fantasy aside, having a, a closer is stupid, right? That we should do it the way the Rays do it with mixing and matching high leverage situations, correct? Yes. Although even there, high strikeout rates mm-hmm. and low home run rates are good indicators of who should be taking over high leverage roles. Sure. And right now, Jason Adam is buried in the Tampa bullpen, but he's working his way up because his fastball averages more than 100 miles an hour. And there are some teams that just develop these guys again and again and again. You mentioned Tampa. The Yankees. The Yankees always develop hard-throwing, tall guys, but they also develop ground ball pitchers in their relief, their relief roles. A guy like Clay Holmes. He's an excellent reliever. He's never going to be the closer with Chapman there. Michael King? Yes. These are guys who can – Seattle, San Diego. Well, it's because the best relievers are failed starters. Well, once teams realize that a reliever has to go through the order just once, maybe, go through the order a third of a time, they can take these guys and tell them to just focus on their best pitch. Then you see their average velocity increase because their mix is changing. They're only, I mean, the, the Royals were the master of this back when they won the, won the pennant a couple of years in a row. They took guys, told them to focus on their best pitch, and the average velocity of their overall mix all went up. It was amazing. You know, I'm a Yankees fan, and I think one thing they've been very good at over the years is recognizing when a young starter just doesn't have what it takes to be above average in that role and switching them quickly to a relief role. Chad Green was another one who was who was in that situation before. I mentioned Michael King now. They've done this time and again. Are other organizations, and maybe it's because they don't have the depth of starting pitching, so they have to they have to stick with guys longer. Are, are other organizations not as good as making that shift earlier in a player's career? 
I think there are there are a handful of organizations that are really good at it, but they tend to be the ones that are good at developing pitchers in bunches. Miami, San Diego, Seattle, these teams pack their bullpens with pitchers who have one or at most two really effective pitches, whether that enables them to be good starters or not. You actually don't have to develop relievers as thoroughly as you do starters, right? You don't need four good pitchers. If you come up with guys who throw hard and keep the ball on the ground, if you just can trust enough to stack your bullpen with those guys, you're going to be well off. It helps that all those teams, basically all the teams we just mentioned, are in good pitchers' ballparks because it's kind of almost kind of like the less a manager has to do to adjust to see what's real, the easier it will be to do the right thing, right? And you also need to be able to say, I'm going to develop potential closers, but pitch them in the sixth, seventh, or eighth innings, not save them for these roles. I mean, you've seen the White Sox under La Russa, who actually, you know, innovated that whole role for Dennis Eckersley, right? But now he's just stuck in very rigid roles. It feels like you're going scorched earth on a lot of these theories of what makes a good closer or not. Would you say that you're burning the ground, I break from the crowd, I'm on the hunt, I'm after you. Sent and a sound, I'm lost and I'm found, and I'm hungry like a wolf. I can't believe you guys went with Duran Duran instead of Johan Santana as the bad reference to carry forward. Well, we have to look at where Duran was born. I don't think he's from Rio. <laughs> hey, Maze, can we release all of Tom's singing, like after a few more episodes, yeah. as its Straight own? It's Discord and Rhyme, I'm on the, I'm after you. Well, I want to mention one guy who doesn't Nothing throw hard. Juice like wine, I'm hungry like a wolf. So when you're hunting for saves, don't forget <laughs> Joe Mantiplee. Yes, who? Is he Mantiplying? No, he's Mantiplying. Oh. He's in Arizona's bullpen. Mark Melanson, they're purported closer. Another former Yankee, by the way. Yeah. He has an ERA over eight. I think he has three strikeouts all season. Mantiply doesn't strike out guys, but he has a really high ground ball rate. It's just a matter of time. That happens less often than the high strikeout guys, but it does happen. Remember Juris Familia? Who could forget Juris Familia in the 2015 World Series? Ah, uh, yes, yes. Well, he gave up and still gives up very few home runs. That's how he got the closers role. Not by throwing especially hard. He had that sinking. But he threw like 97. Yeah, but he had the sinking fastball. He induced a ton of ground balls. That's how Camilo Duval of the Giants got to be their closer. Anyway, go grab Johan Duran if he's available in your league. Go look up A.J. Minter. Keep an eye on Jason Adam. And if your league's really deep and these guys are already <laughs> already acquired, Take a look at Joe Mantiply, the ground ball version of the closer in waiting. Come Undone is a very underrated Duran Duran song. You know who's a good closer? Well, I should say, you know who wasn't a good closer? Could it be? Could it be? <laughs> a horse of a different color? Yeah, a horse of a different color. Epicenter failed to close in the Kentucky Derby is now the overwhelming, right? Six to five, almost even money favorite in the Preakness. Do you think we should... Talk about whether the whether that just crowds out the chance for any long shots at all in the Preakness, or do we have are there are there Preakness picks you guys have come up with that could possibly shift the epicenter of the whole race? Wow! If we don't have vet the bet, it's time to bet the vet with the horse that has the best medical team. There's no need to fear or quaver. Underdog is here to save her. Underdog. I got one. You know what, Maze? This might have to be my cinephobe debut. 
Pippi Longstocking movie that I used to watch when I was a kid incessantly. Oh. You know, when you only have like three VHS tapes and you, you watch one of them a hundred thousand times. That was Pippi Longstocking for me. This horse is called. Wait, can we unpack that for a second? Yeah, this is this is almost. Not only did I never see Pippi Longstocking, how was that one of the three cassettes in your house? Yeah, I'm gonna have to ask my dad on this one how how this happened. Oh, oh, wait, was I hate to bring this up, but was that the was that the animated version or the live action version? This was not the animated version. This was, I believe, the Adventures of Pippi Longstocking. There are people walking alongside a house. There's a monkey involved. It's a wonderful film, and I haven't watched it since I was six years old. So, is this all a prelude to picking a redheaded horse? This is a prelude. It seems like you might have some peanut butter in your mouth this episode with all the smacking of your lips, maybe. Skippy Longstocking instead of Pippy Longstocking. <laughs> Skippy Longstocking, 20 to 1 odds. Not too much of a long shot, but enough for me to say, hey, this is an underdog horse that I am going to ride in the Preakness. And I'll tell you why. Great name, obviously. Secondly, the sun of Exaggerator, the winner of the 2016 Preakness race, Skippy Longstocking. Put it on the board. No need to vet that bet. Skippy Longstocking, 20 to 1 odds to win the Preakness. Let's go. He's going to win in a jiff. I got a different one for you. Not exactly a long shot, but there's only nine horses in the race, so it's pretty hard to find one. I learned a new term today, and that is a horse that doesn't race in the Kentucky Derby and does race in the Preakness they call New Shooters. Well, New Shooters have won the past two Preaknesses. Oh. And in the past eight Preaknesses, they've finished in the money in 12 of 24 times. So I'm looking at New Shooters, and I got one in mind, and that is early voting. Not only a great name, not only a New York horse, but also early voting is really important in a functioning democracy. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going with early voting. (laughs) For the win this Saturday. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, until very recently, you had been absentee on our horse race <laughs> picks. So I'm glad to see you've cast your ballot. Wait, was your voting correct in the Vet the Bet debut last week? Don't you remember? I smoked Jordan twice in Vet the Bet. Twice? I got the first one right. I wanted to hear it from the horse's mouth. I think you rode my coattails off the first one. Go back and vet the tape about that. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Why don't you listen to Peter going, well... Yeah, Jordan was right. I'll have to do that answer too because I'm not bold enough to go out on my own. It's going to be a long time before people hear that on tape. Look, Epicenter is a fine favorite. If the Derby had ended at a mile and three sixteenths, Epicenter would have won. Epicenter was looking over his wrong shoulder because he was racing with Zandon. But everybody was. Nobody saw Rich Strike come up. I mean, it it was a crazy race. So fine. I understand why he's the favorite. He ran a he ran a great race. Another horse won at that track just one day earlier, and her name is Secret Oath. That's right, a filly. She dominated that Kentucky Derby track at the Kentucky Oaks. She's basically dominated every race she's run. She's not tired. She's healthy. Only six fillies have won the Preakness, but I'm pretty sure one ran the second fastest time ever there after Secretariat. And at this distance, it might matter that as a filly, She's allowed to carry five fewer pounds than the male racers. 
And also, she's a Philly. She's an underdog. You sound pretty fanatical about this Philly. <laughs> yeah, it's odd to hear you being so fanatical about this horse. Not the hugest long shot. I think she's at nine to two right now. But come on, bet the bet and bet the girl. That really isn't a long shot at all. There's only like four horses in this race. Yeah, and you guys said no to Fenwick, 50 to one odds, and Happy Jock at 30 to one odds. You got... Skippy Longstocking is the only true underdog in this field are these picks that you have. Wait, are you betting Skippy Longstocking to actually win? Or Oh, I'm sorry. Did Rich Strike just win the whole effing thing at the Derby? <laughs> don't scoff in my direction, Duffman. Hey, why don't you go have another party, Tom? You didn't pick Rich Strike. How's your Preakness party coming along? Yeah. You get the crab cakes on order yet? Jordan, pass the watercress sandwiches when you get a moment, will you please? Yeah, seriously. The watercress sandwiches. I'm going to throw a hot brown in your face if you say that again. We should definitely wear Seersucker for the next episode. Did you say Secret Oath? Maze, we, we should probably start Horse Illuminati here. Secret Oath? What kind of secret oath are we talking here? What is it about this horse that they don't want to tell us? What is big horse racing hiding with Secret Oath? I can't wait to find out. Next, from... Metal Arc Media, Lebetard and Friends, Horse Illuminati. <laughs> You're really saddling our audience with some expectations here. <laughs> As I like to say, win, play this show. <laughs> God, that is so bad. I can't let that into the show. Oh Maze, you God. have to take that out. No, no, they no. Can't. That's the new title of this show. I can't let it happen. I can't let us move on without asking you very quick. Just quick reactions. This week it was reported that the Knicks have an interest in potential free agent. That's right. Longtime friend of the podcast, Tyus Jones. Reactions? Is he ready to be a starter? Is he ready to run a team in New York? What's the restraining order that Jordan has on Tyus Jones? I don't think he's allowed to play for the Knicks if Jordan's going to stay where he is. Jordan can't come downtown. I would never, ever want to subject him to being a Nick. It's just the worst. Those are sad. Those are sad. I thought we'd be excited. Chance to yeah. starting job, superstar, biggest media outlet in the world. Yes, he's ready to be a starter. So our producer Mays just asked, how are we wrapping up? And I would have to say at this point, the answer is poorly. <laughs> <laughs> Pippi Logstocking is coming into your town. Mays, get ready, baby. Tom Uncut, coming soon to Spotify. Was that actually the, the theme? Oh, was it actually the theme? Don't doubt me. Why is Pippi Longstocking coming to my town? It sounds more like a horror film. Yeah. <laughs> what does she do when she gets there, Tom? Pippi Longstocking. In a world. Against all odds. It's back from the dead and coming to your town. One woman with red Wendy's-like hair. Unbridled hair. He's going to walk along the side of your house and burn it down. Pippi Longstocking, coming to theaters near you. I don't want to cut you off, but Peter and I have a lunch we need to get to. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Just never ends. Everybody, thanks for listening. Not only can you follow us on Twitter, you can make corny jokes with us on Twitter, at Tom Haberstrow, at Peter Keating, NJ, at Jordan Brenner. We want to hear from you. We want to know what you want on this show. So come, bring your favorite pun. Stay a while. Take the secret oath, and we'll see you next week.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.